to say it's a little bit of a challenging sermon for me uh, in a good way. So in our Sunday study, we're studying the book of Timothy. And this next Sunday, we are going to be handling the verses of 12 and 13 in chapter 2. And let me read it. Paul says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. What I find interesting is tonight we're going to take a look at a prophetess. So there's automatically a little bit of tension there. How can Paul say this in the New Testament when we look back in the Old Testament and we see several women that appear to be in leadership were prophets or prophetesses. And so how do we put that all together? So I'm actually going to be spending more time on that subject than even our text. Our text is going to be about six or seven verses, but it surrounds Huldah, the prophetess, and it will surround other prophetesses, and we'll try to make some sense of the Bible and put this all together. And uh, we'll try to do it in such a way that I just don't get lynched from this church. You know, uh, I have to say that one time I was doing something, and it was through a passage in Scripture that talked about women. And I was reading this illustration of a, an older illustration of, of what women used to do. And, um, you know, it, it, it kind of seemed archaic, uh, all of the chores that they had to do at home and in the family. And I actually had a woman take the paper, <laughs> crumble it, and throw it at me while I was preaching. Now, she did it in a right way. She did it as a joke. But um, anyway, very interesting. So hopefully we can put this together. And same thing with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and through 13. Um, I am not a woman hater, and I don't think the church is a woman hater. And I don't think that the Lord Jesus Christ is a woman hater. And I think when we understand it in the proper way, that it makes sense. In fact, that's what, what Bible study is all about, making sense of what God has said in his word. Well, before we go any further, um, I want to have a uh, word of prayer, maybe two words of prayer, and then we'll proceed. Heavenly Father, we need not shrink back from the truth of your word. And Father, not only that, but even times that we talk about submission and women, we as men must realize that submission is all about our lives too. Submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything and according to his word. Father, even though we're not going to talk about submission tonight per se, we are going to talk about how you used women, uh, not a whole lot, but how you used women in the Old Testament. Some of them were prophetesses. So, Father, we ask you to help us put this all together and that you are honored and that we are all submitting to your word in the proper place and the proper roles that you've called us to. And we'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... What we do here is we do our review, 
And if you remember, there was Manasseh, and he was the one that had the straw that broke the camel's back. Because of his sin, God says, that's it. You're done. Judah is going into captivity. Not yet, but don't even try to change my mind. But he repented at the very end of his life. And we believe it was sincere repentance. So we said he was one of those evil, good kings, evil in the beginning, good at the end. Well, he has a son, and the son can make a choice of whether he's going to follow the evil part or the good part. And he follows the evil part. And that seems to be somewhat natural for the book of Kings. But then there comes Josiah. And even though his grandfather was evil good, his father was evil evil, he is good good. Good in the beginning and good at the end. And they, they made Josiah king at eight years old. And you know that he had some influence there. And I think we would say godly influence because he did right before the Lord. And even at a young age like 20, he did this, rev this revival uh, in Judah, getting rid of all of the images. And then at, at, we also took time last week to talk a little bit about Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's ministry starts about this time with Josiah. So it, it's very interesting to see both of these going on. Well, next what we see is that Josiah was paying the workmen to do the work on the house of the Lord. And we often see this in the book of Kings as something good, good works uh, to, to give the Lord honor, to let that which has been allowed to, you know, fall into disrepair, repairing it. And that's what we see. And so he was paying them. And he had um, his priest, Hilkiah, out there taking care of things, and he found the book of the law. And Josiah was already on the right path, but you have to say this clinched it. And so um, someone read the book of the law to Josiah, and after he heard the word of the Lord, he wept and tore his clothes in a sign of grief, humility, and even repentance. And so when we pick it up in verse 13, we find out that he's going to inquire of the Lord concerning the things that he read. And I believe it was uh, scriptures that talked about, if you don't obey me, if you start to worship these other gods, you will be taken into captivity. And so that's on his heart. And so he sends his high, high priest and others to go inquire of the Lord. And how do you do that in the book of Kings? You go to the prophet. But in this case, it's a prophetess. And her name is Halda. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. Look at verse 13. This is 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 13 and 14. 2 Kings 22, verse 13. And here's Josiah where it says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judea concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. 
because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So there's actually a lot going on, but I want to key in on that. He's inquiring of the Lord, and you go to a prophet. Now, one of the questions is why they didn't go to Jeremiah at this time or Zephaniah, who also was a prophet during the time of Josiah. I don't know. And he doesn't give specifics. He just says, go inquire of the Lord. I don't know if that means that he's not responsible for them going to a female prophetess. But they do. And she seems to have been in there. She seems to have been reputable. And we find out in the Old Testament, these women who were prophetesses, they received revelation from the Lord just like their male counterparts, the prophets. That's the similarity. We will see a number of differences. So I think that's one of the secrets of how to understand this. Now, we don't know much about her. This is the only time that we see her in Scripture. Um, it says that she was a prophetess, and we have to take those words at face value Again, a prophet or prophetess is someone who receives revelation from God. In other words, there's no other way to know it. You, you, you can't figure this out on your own. God reveals to you his will or God reveals to you um, his will for a future event or God reveals a future event. And that's why they go to inquire of the Lord. So that part is good. And she seems to have been there and been recognized and so one might even say this is what they've been doing every time they wanted to inquire of the Lord they'd go to Huldah the prophetess now it says in verse 14 so Hilkiah the priest Ahikam Achbor Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess and then it says, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. So let's just quickly go through some of that. So it's interesting that the high priest goes directly to her. So you get the idea. This is who they must have been going to the whole time. Well, she's married to someone who's the keeper of the wardrobe. What, is, what does that mean? Well, I, it could mean royal clothes for the king, or it could mean some of the um, sacred clothes for the priests. Maybe it also means that he was someone who could repair those things if there was a problem. But anyway, this is what his responsibility was. And she's married to him. And then it says, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. Now, the second quarter uh, actually takes us back to the time of Hezekiah. So we would see this. Hezekiah's Jerusalem, the second quarter. So we remember now Hezekiah, and he was famous for Hezekiah's tunnel. And that's that blue area there, blue because it's water. Uh, we don't know how high the water's going to be on any given day, but uh, 
you need to go through that if we can ever go back to visit Israel. Well, we look and we see the city of David, which was the original, and then the first expansion was Solomon's expansion. When he became king, he expanded it. And it pretty much stayed the same until Hezekiah came in and he expanded the area. Now, this is what we believe is the second corner of Jerusalem. The only thing is, is that we're not sure if this is what Hezekiah was limited to or if he actually went farther and, and did a greater expanse. Well, either way, uh, this is where she lived in this expansion. Now, at this point, I want to just talk about the fact that she was a prophetess. How do we look at old women in the Old Testament and some of the ones in the New Testament that are prophetesses? How do we put that together with 1 Timothy chapter 2? Well, I'm going to try in just a moment. The first thing that I want us to recognize is that out of at least 52 prophets that are named, there's probably more. In fact, we know there's more. Uh, they even had kind of like that school for prophets. And I don't mean that uh, come to this school and we'll teach you how to be a prophet. Um, those who were appointed by the Lord. Um, but, but there's 52, some 52 prophets that are named in the Bible. And out of them, there are seven that are women. And of course, they're called prophetess. And I have them listed there. The first one that's identified as a prophetess is Miriam. That would be Moses and Aaron's sister. And she had the function of a prophetess. And then, of course, probably the most famous is Deborah. Deborah was one of the judges of Israel. In fact, we did go through the book of Judges quite a few years ago. And we talked about Deborah. She was one of the judges of Israel as well as a prophetess. Now, there's another one, which it very well could be Isaiah's wife. We talked about Isaiah and the fulfillment of the prophecy to Isaiah. And it says in chapter 8, verse 3, that his wife was a prophetess. So she's included. Fourth, we have Huldah, which we're looking at here in 2 Kings. And then there is Noadiah. Now, it is believed that Noadiah was a prophetess, but she was a false prophetess. In fact, uh, let's just take a look at Nehemiah real quick. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 14. So in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 14... We see a prayer where it says, remember, oh, my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to the works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. And you would imagine if, no, if, if Hezekiah, I'm sorry, if, if, if um, Nehemiah is doing the will of God, then no prophet would go against him either male or female. So we would lump her with Sanballat, who was uh, one of the enemies of Nehemiah. So we see that she's a false prophetess. We come to the New Testament, and we have Anna. Do you remember Anna? And this is part of, we hear this 
this time of year or Christmas, we hear Anna because she, she was there in the temple fasting and praying and wanted to see the Messiah, and she was able to identify the Messiah. So there's that revelation from God. And then in the book of Acts, Acts 21.9, we read of Philip the evangelist that he had four daughters, and these daughters were prophetesses in the New Testament. So to, to say that it's not bonafide would be wrong. For some reason, God has this and has them in their place and their office. But I'd like to take a look at I've, what's, what's the function of the prophetesses. I mean, I've already said that for revelation from God, just like the prophets. But we'll go through that. And then I want to look at the differences between prophets and prophetesses. There are some differences. And then I want to look at prophetesses in light of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to take on the, the, the counter-argument of Deborah. So that's, that's where we're headed in this, and we're just going to spend most of our time. And then when we're done with that, we'll finish up uh, this chapter with what Huldah has to say, what the Lord reveals to her to say to Josiah. All right, so let's go back to the function of prophetesses. And I've, as I said before, a prophet is someone who receives revelation from God, and that's so important, um, especially when we think about the Bible and scriptures. It's not like someone was very religious and very intellectual, and they wrote a Bible. No, it was revealed by God. That was the process of inspiration in writing the Bible. When these prophets or prophetesses would give out the word of the Lord, it was, it was not some feeling that they had. The Lord revealed it to them. So we do see a bona fide office for them. Now, I want to look at Anna for just a moment uh, because we're going to see a little bit of this function. And so in Luke chapter 2, let's turn there. Beginning in verse 36. This is all we're going to really read about her, but it's enough. And it's enough to know that she was a prophetess. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Uh, hang on for just a second. So at this point, there is something a little different about her ministry as a prophetess than there are, say, with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, who are called to speak and to speak publicly to Judah or Israel. So her, her ministry was a little bit different. She spent most of it serving night and day in the temple with fastings and prayers. And then verse 38 says, at that very moment, 
she came up and began giving thanks to God. This is after she saw Jesus being presented at the temple. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she, we don't know if she gave out other prophecies or what have you, but here she was going to identify the Messiah, specifically to Joseph and Mary. Now, maybe others heard. I'm not saying that at all, but it wasn't a public ministry per se. It was more of a private ministry, a private consultation. And I love the fact that it is revealed to her not only is Jesus the Messiah, but he is the redemption of Jerusalem. We just talked about reconciliation and redemption. It means to buy back. He's going to die on the cross for our sins and buy us back uh, to God. So that was Anna. And we see this revelation, but it's at least with her, it's not quite the revelation that we see with the other prophets in their ministry. Next, we have the daughters of Philip. And the daughters of Philip, of course, are in Acts chapter 21. I'll ask you to turn there. We'll go back to verse 8. And here's all we're going to really read. Acts 21, verse 8, on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now, again, we don't know what exactly their ministry was. Maybe we could compare it to these other prophetesses where it's mostly private and not public, but let me show you the next verse, verse 10, as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Interesting. He says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. We're talking about the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning. And this just goes to show that he's a part of the word of God. And it could be called the word of the spirit. And what he says is, in this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So here we have Agabus. We don't really know what the, the four daughters did. Why did God not use the four daughters in this prophecy or revelation we don't know but we do know that when it comes to prophets they are used in a great way now here is private except for there are members of the church there but when i say private versus public i'm i'm referring to prophets such as isaiah and jeremiah they're very public and this is what almost got them killed so that's the daughters of philip not much is said and then I just want to talk about Isaiah's wife for just a moment. And this is in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. And we talked about this. Um, we talked about King uh, Ahab who was going to get this revelation from God. God said, 
choose a sign, and he said, I'm not going to choose a sign. God said, I will choose a sign for you. And the famous words is, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, we said about prophecies is that sometimes there is an immediate natural fulfillment, but looking forward to a divine, divinely brought about fulfillment of the prophecy. Now with Isaiah, uh, let's drop down to Isaiah chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 8. And here's where Isaiah has a son. He says, so I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, and I love this name, name him Meher Shalahashbaz. All right. And what, what we're going to see is that this was, even though the wording was, uh, and a virgin will be with child, there is a natural sense in which it can be fulfilled, um, meaning that maybe his wife, prophetess, had never known a man until he had relations with her. And, but it did mean a miraculous virgin birth like it does with the Lord Jesus Christ as fully explained in the book of Matthew. But he calls her the prophetess, and the, and the, the context would suggest that this is who it's talking about. The prophetess is probably Isaiah's wife. Now, some have said, and it's very po possible, we don't see any prophecies by her. So maybe she is a prophetess in the sense that the wife of a deacon is called a deaconess. Possibility. Maybe, maybe she did give prophecies. But it's very possible that she was called a prophetess just like a deaconess who's married to a deacon, she's given the title of a, a deaconess, even though we see that even as an office uh, in the New Testament. And what, what is very interesting then, drop down to verse 5. Verse 5, no prophecy was given to her, but Isaiah begins to speak. Verse 5, again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying. And so we see these major prophecies being given, not through the prophetess, but through Isaiah. And I suppose that's how he gets the book named after him, because he is the prophet. So it, it, this is just showing us that it has to do with revelation, but it may not be the exact same as it is with a prophet, a male prophet. Um, am, am I saying any way that women are inferior to men? Absolutely not. And first of all, spiritually, they would not be. I mean, they don't have to go through their husband to, in order to get to the Lord. They, they, the Lord is their Lord and Savior. And second of all, I don't think it means, and we'll talk more about this on Sunday, I don't think it means aptitude. I, I am always very impressed uh, with women, uh, my wife and sometimes my daughter and various others that we're talking about spiritual things and they make a comment and I say, that is really good. Um, 
So we're not talking about a lack of intelligence, but what we are talking about is design. In the beginning, God designed it that way. He made Adam first. He could have made Eve first, but he didn't. And the scripture says, look, this isn't cultural. This is from the design of Genesis. He made Adam first and then Eve. And so this is what Paul is going to give us in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 of why we have this male leadership. But it does go a little farther than that. And I want to talk about some of the differences, but I also want to talk about, you know, what's interesting is even though men have the proper place of spiritual leadership in the home, even though uh, women can't teach men, uh, even though a pastor has to be a man, so even though we have those things, it just seems like it's like pulling teeth to get men to step forward and be spiritual leaders. And as I've said before, you can understand sometimes why women see a need and decide to take care of that need, which we've all done and overstepped our bounds in many different areas of life. But there is this impetus to men to step up to your proper place. Well, anyway, so what are some of the differences between the prophets, particularly of the Old Testament, and the prophetesses? Well, first of all, as I said, this, this is, these are rare occasions. Dare I even say they're special occasions. Something needed to be done, okay? And so their, their ministry uh, to the nation of Israel or Judah rarely came through a prophetess. Um, Deborah could be an exception, but we'll take a look at Deborah, and I think we'll actually answer that. The, the ongoing prophetic ministry was through the male prophets. It was extremely rare for these women to be in that place. And so it was, I believe, a special situation. Now, secondly, uh, I want to say what I've said before. We don't really see them as far as like Isaiah in a public ministry to the entire nation. A lot of times it's just a private ministry. That's what Huldah is going to do. I mean, they inquire of her. She doesn't stand out in the marketplace and give this revelation to God. They come to her, and it's kind of a private consultation. And we're, we're going to see that. You know, in the same thing with Mir Miriam. Now, Miriam, let's go back to Exodus 15, 20. Now, again, we could say that maybe I'm reading between the lines and and. and it's the idea, but it could be. Well, you got to be careful with it, but it could be, okay? If it doesn't say it in the scripture, it might not. And so you have to be careful of that. But when we look at Miriam in Exodus 15, 20, this is what we read. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her with timbrels and with dancing. So it's been recognized that perhaps her ministry, prophetic ministry, was to women. 
certainly would have, wouldn't have been like Moses, right? I mean, and he was considered a prophet. In fact, he was the one that gave us that prophecy that God was going to raise up a prophet like him, but greater. And he does, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't use her in the same sense that he's using Moses. And so here we see her with women. Whether that means it's only women, don't know for sure, but that's all we're given. And even Deborah, I think an argument could be made that Deborah, we're going to look at Deborah in just a moment, because the argument could be, well, she's a judge of Israel, she's leading Israel, but not quite. We see her in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, verse 5. We see her in the realm of private consultations, revelation from the Lord. It says in Judges 4, 5, she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. So it could be understanding, or I'd even be willing, since she's called a prophetess, I'd be willing to say that she gives revelation, but it seems to be the private consultation. And we're going to get back to Deborah. And then the third point of a difference is we do not see a woman become the author of any book in scripture. Now they could have because it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but why, why wouldn't that happen? Well, I think it goes back to the design, the design of men and leadership. That's what God wants. And so uh, no woman was inspired to author any of Scripture's 66 books. John MacArthur had said that. Now, there is tongue-in-cheek. There is a little question about the book of Hebrews. Because in Hebrews chapter 13, which is 13 chapters, quite a big epistle, it concludes with, but I urge you, brethren, bear, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So the joke is only a woman could write 13 chapters and call it briefly. Okay, that's tongue in cheek. Hopefully you get the humor of that better than my harmony of the gospel joke. That's just, I have not been able to see that thing take off. So one of these days we're going to talk about what a harmony of the gospel is. Anyway, so tongue in cheek here. We don't see any woman be an author of any book in Scripture. It fits with God's design. It's not putting women down. It's not saying anything about their intellect or their lack of spirituality. And I'll be honest with you, I have found out many, many times that it is the women of the church who just remain steadfast and spiritual. My wife being one of them, I didn't always walk with the Lord as I should have. Years ago, many, many years ago, before I became a pastor, obviously, I did backslide. I backslid for a time. But my children were going to church, not because I was bringing them, but because she was faithful. So 
the idea is, is that it's, it's not against the spiritual, spirituality of women. It's not against their intellect. It has everything to do with the way God designed it. And every believer ought to say, if that's the way you designed it, that's the way you want it, I'm on board with it. Now, let's move one step further towards understanding prophetesses in the light of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 and 13. And I'll just read that again. We're going to talk about it on Sunday. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Let me stop there. I'm going to say it again. The major argument today is, well, that was then. That was their culture. Nope. Look at verse 13. Here's Paul's reasoning. For it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. It was God's design. It was God's design. So we'll take a look at that. But how do you get from a woman not teaching or exercising authority over men and we have these prophetesses? Well, I... I uh, let me go through a couple of things. The first one is, it's, a, it's special circumstances. There could be extenuating circumstances. So we have to recognize that what we see in these Old Testament prophetesses was not the norm. We have 52 prophets named, and only seven of them are women. But they were extenuating circumstances. Something was up. Something had to be done. Now, I'm going to give a couple of reasons, but before I do that, at this point, there will be those who will say, well, that just sounds like a double standard from God. That's not right. Well, so would this be a double standard from God? John Calvin replied, extraordinary acts done by God do not overturn the ordinary rules of government by which he intended that we should be bound. So, no, if it's an extenuating circumstance, God could bring it in. And by the way, what book in the Bible shows you more diversions from the norm, diversions from the will of God, more than the book of First and Second Kings? Oh, my word. So, just quickly, how about Ahab, who married Jezebel, whose father uh, was involved in Baal worship. She brought the prophets of Baal with her. Tell me that wasn't a diversion from the norm. But guess what? That does not thwart God and his will, his ultimate will. How about, here's another one, one of my favorites. How about Ahab's random death? In 1 Kings 22, verse 34, Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded, and he eventually dies. So what, what do you do? What do you do when Ahab dresses up differently than a king, makes his buddy the king come over here. You dress up like King Ahab, but he gets killed by a random archer in a place where the protective armor 
can't protect him. And then the final one was, and this does pertain to a woman, how about Queen Athaliah? You remember her? Um, in 2 Kings 11, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. She was going to get rid of all of those who were going to try to take back the, the, the kingdom, the reign. And of course, we, we find out that Joram gets hidden. Okay, so well, again, this just shows us that a diversion from the norm doesn't mean God's doing a, a double standard. I think what it means is he is more than capable of working within the sinfulness and the diversions of men or the lack thereof. And I think that's what we have here next, that perhaps some of these are times, not all of them, some of these are times when there was a lack of male leadership. And let's talk about Deborah now and uh, Barak. Let's talk about them because I think this is all about a lack of male leadership. Not a lack of males, but a lack of men who are unwilling to step up and be leaders. And so insert Deborah as the judge. Now let me, let me read a quote here. By the way, I'm, I'm quoting from a book that's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Now, this book has been around for a while. In fact, you can get it free on the Internet if you like, if you don't mind PDF form. So it's there. It's been around for a while, but it's one of the major writings to help bring back a biblical viewpoint on manhood and womanhood. And it actually talks about Deborah. But first of all, it says evangelical feminists. Did you catch that? evangelical feminists, those who profess to be believers, they consider Deborah particularly significant because she functioned as a judge over Israel, which would include judging men, and she exercised authority over the man. Barak, who was a commander of the Israelite troops. So they say, well, here's an example. Well, I'm going to go through this, and I'm not sure that that's the best way to characterize this. What is very interesting in the very beginning, that even though she is the judge of Israel, even though she is a prophetess, God does not call her to be the commander of the army. That was usually saved for the judge of Israel, but in this case, she's, it, he doesn't call for her. He commands that Barak do it. Turn with me to Judges chapter 4, if you're not already there. Judges chapter 4, where it says that she was a prophetess, verse 5, that she would sit under the palm tree and people would come to her. And it says in verse 6 and 7, now she sent and summoned Barak. Boom, she must be in leadership. Not necessarily. Barak, the son of Abinoam, 
from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded. This is the function of a prophet or a prophetess. Doesn't mean that she is, um, doesn't mean that she's usurping his authority. Otherwise, you would say Jeremiah, Isaiah, and all of the other prophets usurp the authority of the one that God put into authority. Not true. Not true. So here's Barak, who is commanded to do something. What? Verse 6, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulon. And I, that's the Lord, will draw out to you uh, Sisera. Now, who's he? He's the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and many troops to the river Kishon. And he says, and I will give him into your hand. The reason why they didn't want to fight against him because of all the chariots and because of all the, tr the troops and what a, what a uh, strategic and powerful commander in general Sisera was. And then you have verse 8. You just got commanded by the Lord. Then Barak said to her, if you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, maybe this is out of respect, but it's not. The Lord just commanded him to do something, and he said, I'm not going to do it unless this, con this condition is fulfilled. That's the problem. So what happens now? Well, look at verse 9. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. So it really seems that the Lord has orchestrated all of this. The men are not fully going forward. Barak is being rebuked, and it's going to be a woman who ends up killing Sisera. And the woman's name is ja Jael. So I think it's pretty clear what the scriptures are teaching us here. There were some extenuating circumstances when the men wouldn't step up or weren't qualified to step up. And so Deborah was. And Deborah doesn't say, I'm going out. I'm going to lead the, the army. She doesn't say that. She says, the Lord told me that, that he's commanding you to go. And he says, well, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. That was not out of respect. Maybe there was some respect, but it was foolish because he disobeyed the command. The Lord didn't say, go if she goes with you. Go. And then it says that the honor that was going to be yours to kill Sisera, this great commander, is not going to be yours anymore, but a woman. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, I, almost every commentary I have read, not only today, but in the past when we studied this, they all assert that viewpoint. The viewpoint of it was about male leadership and male leadership didn't step up. And the we, we find here in the book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, the, the editors were John Piper, 
and Wayne Grudem. So those are two big heavyweights. So we're not just talking about anyone. This is what they said. Deborah is not asserting leadership for herself. She gives priority to a man. There is an implied rebuke of Barak because he's not willing to go to battle without Deborah. Because of his reluctance, the glory that day will go to a woman. John MacArthur writes, Deborah's rise to such a role is the exception in the book because of Barak's failure to show the courage to lead courageously. God rebuked his cowardice by the pledge that a woman would slay Sisera. And of course she did. He came into the tent to lie down and she drove a tent stake through his temple. Wow. And so she is forever remembered of being a brave woman to put this enemy away for good, not Barak. Well, hopefully I've, I've at least shown us that there are differences. The, the main idea is revelation from God, but the way that they carried out these functions has been a little different. Even Deborah, I don't think you can, can put Deborah in a place where she was the judge over everything and, and she's, she was a kind of prophet like Isaiah that spoke to the nation. You don't see that at all. And she was willing to defer to Barak. Well, let's move on then. Let's finish out this, this chapter. So now, with that, let's let Huldah speak. Because she indeed is one of the prophetesses. And again, what we see here is more like a private consultation than the whole idea of her speaking to the entire nation. In fact, the king told them to go to a prophet or prophetess. All right, so let's pick it up then in 2 Kings 22, verse 15 through 17. She, that would be Huldah, said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And by the way, doesn't that sound like the, the formula? The formula that we've been seeing in prophets. It's not their word. It's the revelation of God so that it's his word. And now she's going to give it. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. That would be the king. The Lord knows that. But the Lord is describing in this way. He will describe him in detail. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Ugh. So here's Josiah, this good, good king, probably the last king that does a reform for God, and God says, I'm sorry. Manasseh messed it up for everybody. I am done. But he is going to have mercy on Josiah. What's interesting, he said, notice where he says, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. So the law was written to him, the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And what did he read? 
he read the same thing that God has been saying in the book of Kings, both first and second Kings. If you worship other gods and you won't stop, I'm taking you out. Now, he doesn't just say that in the book of Kings. He said it all the way back in Exodus when he met with the people. You shall not worship them, talking about these false gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He talks about Deuteronomy. They could have, could have been reading Deuteronomy. When he says, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He says in verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations. Where the Lord drives you. That's the great exile. Assyria already has the northern kingdom, and Babylonia is about to get Judah. We've, we're going through the last five kings. We're coming to the end of second kings, but it's the same message over and over. Uh, he says, they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. In other words, he gave them the promised land, everything they needed. All they needed to do was stay faithful to the Lord. And they didn't. And he removed them. Well, this is why he wanted to consult the Lord. He wanted to find out what's going on. When is there going to be this destruction? Is it coming soon? Is it coming upon me? Is it coming upon your people? And verse 17 answers that question. Because they have forsaken me. And have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place. It shall not be quenched. So in those three to four sections of scripture, when he says Manasseh was the last straw, he was. It's done. It's coming. But look at the mercy of the Lord. Verses 18 through 20, Huldah, the prophetess is going to talk about the mercy that God is going to show to Josiah. Verse 18. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place, and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will, therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place, 
So they brought back word to the king. Now, what's interesting to that, not only are we talking about mercy, <coughs> but look at Josiah's character. The first thing he did was he inquired of the Lord. And that's what we ought to do no matter what. No matter what situation we come up against, what trial we come up against, what good thing we come up against, what thing we need wisdom for, we should always pray and be inquiring of the Lord. That's something that pleases him. I know people have said, well, I don't want to bother him with my problems, a little problem. And the answer is, well, to God, to big sovereign God, there are no big problems. They're all little. So go ahead. And God wants to hear from us. He is our God. We are his people. And the people of God do depend upon him. That's the relationship that he set up. He wants us to depend upon him. And when we don't depend upon him or we depend upon someone or something else, what happens? It ain't good. So this is what we see here. First of all, he inquired of the Lord. The second thing we see was that he humbled himself before the Lord. And that's, that's the idea that he's the Lord and I'm not. He created me. I'm his creation. What should I do as his creation? I should submit to him. I should listen to his word. I should do it. And if I don't, what happens? Do I get struck with lightning? No, but I am disobeying God no matter how good of a Christian I say I am. This is, this is our proper place. Humility means to recognize who you really are before God. And then it says, he believed God's word. He believed God's word. And so when he heard the law and saw what God was going to do, he believed it. And this is why I believe that when we do evangelism, don't be afraid to use the word of God. Don't be afraid to talk about everlasting punishment because the Holy Spirit can use that in that person's heart. It's one thing if I say it, but it's another thing if God says it. And he believed, Josiah believed this wrath that was coming. And then it talked about him grieving and repenting and tearing his clothes, which is a sign of grief and repentance. It, it's, it's really a, a proper response um, before the Lord if, if we've disobeyed or if there's disobedience, we... You know, we just, we know that the Lord is displeased. We know that the Lord will keep short accounts. The Lord will deal with these things unless we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is the gospel. That we are under the wrath of God. Not because he's a mean God, but because we're sinners and he's holy. But he loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross in our place. And by the way, what we learned on Sunday was he died for all the sins of everyone. Remember, we said the death of Christ was sufficient for the world, but efficient or purposeful for the elect. And so the idea is this is, this is, this is what the gospel is all about. And then it says that he was going to be not only have peace to the end of his days, but he would be spared from seeing God's wrath. That, that, that is a blessing. I mean, we say, well, maybe it's not reality. Well, 
God blessed him in not having to see that. You know, we see a lot of things on the news now that we wish we, we wouldn't be seeing. And it is heart-rendering. And I have yet to meet one Christian that says, well, I watch the news, but I can only watch so long. Of course, because we can't bear it. And here he gave this as a blessing to Josiah. Well, that's this evening as we talk about Huldah and the prophetesses and what she had to say. She was a bona fide prophetess, but we see that her ministry was not a ministry like we see in Isaiah or Jeremiah, but nevertheless, she received the revelation from God. And isn't it interesting? She has given the revelation of everything that we already see in the Bible. That's how you know they're a true prophet. They don't talk about crazy things, you know, like like the Kansas City prophets years ago would watch the Colorado Buffaloes and whatever the score was, that's the verses they were supposed to go to in the Old Testament, and now it's God speaking to the people. Wow. Wow. So we just come to the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to teach us how to submit to you, how to inquire of you, how to be humble before you. But thank you also, Lord, in putting into categories both the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament prophetesses. It gives us some semblance that you don't contradict what you say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but Father, instead, you confirm it. And so, Father, we thank you for that wisdom that we received tonight, and I do especially pray for wisdom for this coming Sunday that I'm able to share the word of God, able to share it in truth, and able to say it in kindness, but nevertheless in authoritatively from the word of God. And we'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.